June 21st, 1940. One can only imagine the emotions running through the German Führer as he approached the rather unassuming-looking railway carriage that only days before had been a museum piece. The Führer and his entire Nazi movement relished in symbolism, and for him, having this particular carriage brought out and placed on a piece of track in a small clearing just outside of Paris was, at that moment, the final symbolic act in his crusade to toss off the stain of Germany's defeat in the First World War. It was in this carriage, in this spot, that on November 11th, 1918, Germany signed the armistice with the Allies. What followed in Hitler's eyes were almost 22 years of humiliation under the Treaty of Versailles, and the holding back of Germanic peoples achieving their destiny of continental and eventually global domination. Now, all of that was about to come to an end. Stepping into the carriage to meet with France's General Pétain, Hitler was able to close this chapter on the past, where Germany was a beaten and broken nation, for he was here to secure peace with France once again, only this time with Germany as the victor. In just six weeks, his forces had achieved what Kaiser Wilhelm's army previously could not in four years of bloodshed. The German army, the Wehrmacht, had outmaneuvered France's main line of defense and supported by the Luftwaffe from above, ran riot across the French countryside. Nothing was able to stop them. France, and indeed most of Western Europe, had collapsed in just a few months under the weight of the Nazi boot. Leaving the carriage behind, over the next few days, Hitler toured his new French possession, visiting Paris and the iconic Eiffel Tower. It was then that he visited Calais, a port in northwestern France, and it was here that through a set of field glasses, he looked out across the body of water where his new empire stopped and spied what looked like a white wall on the horizon. This was Dover, and this was the closest Hitler had come to seeing Great Britain with his own eyes. Britain was now the one thing that stood between him and total victory, the last nation in Europe to oppose Hitler and remain unconquered. Its army had been battered, leaving much of its equipment in France as it retreated from the beaches of Dunkirk. Its navy, once the most powerful in the world, couldn't hope to contain Hitler from crossing the English Channel in the face of shore guns, German bombers and U-boats, while in the air, the Royal Air Force was outnumbered by the Luftwaffe, and trying desperately to rebuild its strength after the disastrous campaign in France. Under these circumstances, and fueled by the euphoria of his successes thus far, Hitler was certain that the recently appointed British Prime Minister Winston Churchill would have no choice but to sue for peace. He was wrong. Churchill made it abundantly clear that Great Britain would never surrender to Nazi tyranny that Hitler's troops were going to have to fight for every square inch of the British Isles, for in Churchill's mind and the free world itself, surrender was simply not an option. Speaking to the British people, Churchill warned them of the importance of the coming battle, what was at stake, and what it would cost. 
what General Vagon called the Battle of France is over. I expect that the Battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age, made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us, therefore, brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. While the people of Britain had plenty of spirit to spare, the fact of the matter was that Britain was in a poor state to repel an invasion in June of 1940. The prevailing mindsets within the Western allies of Britain and France had been almost locked on the notion that upon the outbreak of war, the world was about to see a repeat of the static fighting seen on the Western Front. In that regard, the mobilization of both countries in September of 1939 almost seemed to mirror that which took place in the summer of 1914, with Britain forming another British expeditionary force to support France in holding back the German onslaught when it finally came. Under the command of General Lord Gort, the advanced elements of the BEF arrived in France on September 9th, 1939. And over the coming months, it swelled in size, reaching 390,000 men by May the following year, comprising five regular divisions and five divisions of the part-time territorial army. While this number paled in comparison to the size of the French and German armies that would be committed to the Battle of France, it was set to rise as Britain almost immediately introduced conscription with the National Service Act shortly after the war broke out, requiring all able-bodied men aged 18 to 41 to serve the armed forces in some capacity. France, meanwhile, mobilized its forces to the border with Germany, and the Maginot line of defenses, which Paris believed would keep the German army out of France. Yet despite French propaganda to the contrary, the Maginot line was not one solid defensive line running the breadth of France's eastern border. There were numerous gaps where it was believed natural obstacles would make building up defenses there unnecessary. It also stopped at the Belgium border, and Hitler would take full advantage of this, invading neutral Belgium, thus bypassing the Maginot line, leaving his forces to spill into France, capturing key objectives, encircling Allied troops trying to withdraw from the now defunct Maginot line and creating a refugee crisis that inhibited almost any Allied troop movements. In the skies, superior tactics and aircraft saw the German Luftwaffe's fighter pilots reign supreme over the French and British air forces. Many of the German fighter pilots had already learned their trade fighting in the Spanish Civil War, 
and realized fighter formations needed to be flexible. A stark contrast to British tactics, for example, which relied heavily on formations, following their leaders' instructions to the letter, regardless of the situation. As the battle for France waged on, and Hitler seemed almost unstoppable, the RAF took a heavy beating at the hands of the Germans, and for one man in particular, this was especially alarming, given that his mission was to protect Britain itself. His name was Air Chief Marshal Sir Hugh Dowding, and he was the Commander-in-Chief of RAF Fighter Command, the branch of the service responsible for air defense. Dowding read the reports coming from France with alarm, and realized perhaps sooner than most that France would fall. With that in mind, he wrote to the British Air Ministry, giving his damning assessment of the situation and advised against sending any more British fighters to be sacrificed in France, knowing that soon his men would be engaged in a battle for the survival of Britain itself. Summing up, he wrote, If the home defense force is drained away in desperate attempts to remedy the situation in France, Defeat in France will involve the final, complete, and irredeemable defeat of this country. Dowding would get his way, but it only further alienated Britain's French allies, who were feeling abandoned by the British, already retreating back to the coast. With the survivors of the BEF reaching the beaches of Dunkirk, Dowding's fighters were able to fly from their bases in southeast England to cover the evacuation. For RAF Fighter Command, this was their last chance to get a taster of what the coming fight for Britain would look like. The head of the Luftwaffe, Hermann Göring, had promised Hitler that his air force could crush the evacuation fleet rescuing the BEF, without having to commit ground forces into a costly, grisly battle to destroy the retreating armies on the beaches. This pleased Hitler, who ordered his troops to halt their advance, which in some areas saw German tanks just 15 miles from the beaches. Goering's fighters and bombers pounded the beaches at Dunkirk, but now, for the first time in the war, they were facing organized fighter resistance. Unlike in France, British fighters flying from England were able to take off and form up generally unmolested by the Germans, meaning they were ready to fight by the time they got to Dunkirk. In all, Fighter Command, along with a small force from the Royal Navy's fleet air arm, flew 2,739 sorties in support of the evacuation. Dowding lost 106 of his precious fighters in the process. Nevertheless, his force severely disrupted the Luftwaffe onslaught, which suffered in the region of 240 aircraft lost to a combination of fighters and defensive gunners aboard the evacuation ships. Dunkirk was a blow to the Luftwaffe, revealing weaknesses in its force when pitted against a capable foe and Goering received much of the blame for allowing the BEF and a large number of French troops to escape. The evacuation was portrayed as a triumph by the British people, but Churchill warned against the optimistic mood that followed, for he knew the truth. Over 63,000 men had been lost in the battle for France, and while conscription was helping replace them, their experience amongst the ranks would be sorely missed in the coming invasion. But what hurt even more was the loss of equipment. There was simply no way of getting the tanks, trucks, and vehicles off the beaches without sacrificing more lives. It was no good Britain having a million fresh conscripts if they had no weapons with which to fight, or any way of even getting to the German landing zones when they arrived. Put simply, the odds of successfully repelling a German invasion in the summer of 1940 were firmly stacked against Churchill's Britain which was beaten, 
bloodied and on the ropes. But again, for Churchill, surrender was never an option. London, June 4th, 1940. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it was subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. Even though the British people found comfort in the knowledge that their land had not been successfully invaded since the time of the Vikings, battling armadas and emperors alike, there was a feeling that the country had never known peril quite like this. But of course, before all that, the Germans had to actually get there. The English Channel, a stretch of water less than 20 miles wide at its narrowest point between Britain and France, had stopped the Germans in their tracks. But everyone knew that it couldn't stay that way if Hitler wanted his total victory. And thus he drew up his plans to cross the Channel. However, while the RAF was hurt, it was still in the fight, as it had proven over Dunkirk. And as it stood in July of 1940, attempting to cross either by sea or by air would suffer appalling losses at the hands of British aircraft. Up until July 1940, Hitler had seemingly had one commodity in spades, time. He had decided when Germany should rearm. He had decided when it should begin reclaiming its lost territories and peoples. He had decided when his forces went to Poland, and it was he who had decided when they strike west. Aside from probing actions by the French, both London and Paris had waged a largely defensive war from the outset, responding to the Führer's moves on the continent, perhaps hoping a negotiated peace could be agreed upon before full-scale war began. Now, however, time was working against him, regarding two key factors for the upcoming campaign to invade Britain. Firstly, there was the matter of the weather. Hitler had achieved victory in France at an ideal time to cross the English Channel, when the weather was favourable for a large invasion force to cross safely. Indeed, many in Britain and across the world wondered why Hitler didn't immediately follow the British army across the Channel and engage British forces when they were at their most vulnerable. The answer was quite simple. Neither Hitler nor his generals had ever foreseen the need to conduct such an invasion, and so were completely unprepared. They had envisioned a continental campaign in which Germany would dominate Europe and force Britain to accept peace, but Churchill's stubborn refusal to comply, coupled with his promise to continue the war by any means, meant Germany was now scrambling to put together a plan for a large seaborne invasion. As Hitler and his generals worked out the details of their invasion plan, German officials began scouring German rivers and harbours, as well as its occupied territories, for fleets of ships that could be used in the coming campaign. 
requisitioning them and having them sail for Dutch and French ports. Additionally, a massive construction program was undertaken to build barges to carry troops and equipment that could be towed across the channel. In order to meet the required number envisioned by Hitler, Belgian, Dutch and French carpenters and boat builders were contracted out by the Germans. Unfortunately for Hitler, assembling this armada would take time that would eat away into his window of opportunity. He had set the date for the invasion for the middle of August, an ambitious goal given the logistical effort that would be involved, but the German high command were acutely aware that delaying the invasion risked crossing when the weather worsened in the autumn posing as much a risk to the troops in the invasion barges as the British defenders they would encounter upon reaching southeast England. The second time factor working against Hitler concerned British readiness. With every passing day, the British would be able to improve static defenses along their coastline, which could block landing zones, leaving German troops bobbing in their barges, unable to make it onto the beaches. They would also have time to dig anti-tank trenches and lay countless mines. Furthermore, while British forces had left a great deal of their equipment at Dunkirk, the British armaments industry was still in business, helping to restock their forces by producing vehicles, guns, bullets, and crucially for the coming battle, aircraft. Indeed, while Hitler's staff differed in opinion on several matters concerning the invasion, one thing they unanimously agreed upon was that the Royal Air Force was going to have to be destroyed first, or the invasion would be a non-starter. Even if the Luftwaffe outnumbered British aircraft during the eventual crossing, just one British plane could shoot up or bomb a barge of as many as 40 German soldiers. Repeat this over and over again, coupled with the possibility of a suicidal charge into the channel by the Royal Navy, bent on doing as much damage as possible, and the English Channel looked set to be turned red with blood from both sides. As head of the German Luftwaffe, it fell once again on the shoulders of Hermann Göring to destroy the RAF, and unlike many of the others in Hitler's inner circle, who were apprehensive about the oncoming battle, he relished the task at hand. Göring was still smarting from his air force's failure to obliterate the British evacuation fleet at Dunkirk, and now he was presented with an opportunity for redemption by effectively opening Britain's door for Hitler. As for the threats from the Royal Navy, neutralizing that fell on the head of the German Kriegsmarine, Admiral Erich Raeder. Like Göring and the Luftwaffe, Raeder and his service too had a rather high-profile stain on their record regarding the Battle of the River Plate, which took place in the South Atlantic on December 13, 1939, with the captain of the German pocket battleship Graf Spee having been duped into scuttling his ship. Unlike Göring, however, Raeder did have his fleet of U-boats to redeem him, which were already giving the British a real headache by sinking vital war material that was being shipped in from Britain's empire to keep it in the fight. This pleased Hitler, and with the war affording Germany fresh resources, he rewarded Raeder by permitting him to proceed with his ambitious battleship program. However, Raeder was forced to reiterate to the Führer that the war had come five years too early for the German Navy, which was at a significant disadvantage compared to the British home fleet, at least in terms of numbers, and it was superior British numbers that decided the pivotal Battle of Jutland in World War I. Armed with this knowledge, Raeder put together a plan that was aimed to keep the Royal Navy away from the German invasion force for as long as possible, preferring not to have to get into a fight with them, if at all possible. 
His plan was a simple case of misdirection. In the days leading up to the invasion, his surface fleet would sortie into the North Sea, where they would inevitably be spotted. Presuming they were on the hunt for British convoys, the Royal Navy would dispatch its warships to intercept them, drawing them away from the British Isles and buying Germany time to launch the first wave of the invasion. At the same time, on the east and western flanks of the invasion forces' route, German boats would weave a deadly, protective web of high-explosive mines to further delay British efforts to disrupt the landings once they realized raiders' surface fleets were in fact decoys. German aircraft and U-boats would also launch attacks against the Royal Navy's ships as they tried to steam into the channel, whittling them down with bombs and torpedoes. However, while the plans for protecting the invasion force were fairly well conceived, the details of the actual invasion were still being worked on in the German halls of power. Many problems dogged the German High Command's planning stage, perhaps the biggest being the personalities of those involved, with both opinion and at times ego playing a part to frustrate matters. Officially, Hitler was the supreme leader of the German armed forces, and he should have brought order to this chaos. However, that wasn't always the case. The problem with Hitler's commanding of the armed forces was the totally inflexible system that required his generals to go through him on almost every matter of consequence, leaving them unable to act when he wasn't around, such as when he was sightseeing in Paris. Furthermore, when he was there, rather than acting as a judge presiding over the opinions of the various branches of the German military and picking the best course of action from an objective viewpoint, very often he had his own ideas, which further frustrated proceedings. There were a number of factors the German army had to consider, such as where to land in Britain, how big the first wave should be, how would they be supplied, and what should their objectives be. Then there was the matter of how big the overall invasion force would need to be, given that they now also had to contend with providing security for Germany's occupied territories in Czechoslovakia, Poland, Scandinavia, and Western Europe. Would the French, for example, see the exodus of so many German troops to Britain as an opportunity to rise up and essentially shoot the German army in the back? Finally, just how would they defeat Britain once there? given that they were seemingly being led by a madman in Downing Street, intent on leading his country into a fight for every inch of British soil. Thus, while Hitler authorized the invasion on July 16, 1940, there was still a great deal that had to be worked out before Goering destroyed the RAF within the projected 30 days set by Hitler, who had assigned the entire operation under the codename Sea Lion. Centuries ago, words were written to be a call and a spur to the faithful servants of truth and justice. Arm yourselves and be ye men of valor and be in readiness for the conflict, for it is better for us to perish in battle than to look upon the outrage of our nation and our altars. In the Great War, Aircraft played a largely supporting role to the battles taking place on the ground. However, during the interwar years, as aircraft and airborne weapons matured, it was quickly being realized that, in the future, air power's role was going to increase, maybe even surpassing land and sea as the most decisive arena. Thus, it became necessary for air forces the world over 
to invest in their air defenses, and in the Royal Air Force, this led to the creation of Fighter Command on July 14, 1936. Fighter Command's role was to deny an enemy the advantages air power offered through the use of fighters to destroy his air force in the air. From its inception, Fighter Command was led by one man, Air Chief Marshal Sir Hugh Dowding. Nicknamed affectionately as Stuffy by his men, in reference to his often serious demeanor and apparent lack of a sense of humor, Dowding was an extraordinarily gifted leader for the new age of warfare that was approaching, in which he would have a leading role. Dowding's strength was in his ability to bring all the complex assets under his command into line, creating a single, cohesive force with which to bring upon the enemy. His no-nonsense attitude also gifted him with a keen and pragmatic vision of any given situation, allowing him to keep his head under pressure and use his assets to their maximum efficiency. By the outbreak of war, Dowding, who was now a widower and living with his sister who helped care for him at his home at his headquarters in RAF Bentley Priory, was getting ready to retire, but was encouraged to stay on as the situation in France deteriorated. It was Fighter Command's losses in France that alarmed Dowding, as he saw that France was going to fall even when others in the British government refused to believe it. This provoked him to make his own controversial suggestion not to sacrifice any more fighters for a simple gesture to the French. Knowing that replacements were going to be desperately needed in the coming battle, Churchill turned to Lord Beaverbrook to ask him to head up a new government ministry dedicated solely to aircraft manufacture. This decision raised more than a few eyebrows in the government, as Churchill and Beaverbrook had locked horns on several occasions over various issues. But explaining his decision in his memoirs, Churchill confessed that not only did he respect Beaverbrook, but also admired his energy when given a task such as this, making him ideal for the job. Beaverbrook went to work immediately after his appointment on May 14, 1940. Such was the urgency that before a proper administrative building could be sourced, Beaverbrook did all his work from his country estate. Beaverbrook knew fighters were going to be of paramount importance in the coming months, and so he went about focusing the country's aircraft production towards that goal. His plan was to have fighter production increased to 250% of the point it was at when he started. But this ambitious goal would take time, as many factories had to be retooled to build them. As the storm clouds of war began to form over Europe in the late 1930s, Britain began its rearmament program, aimed at modernizing the RAF, with newer and more capable fighters. And they had to be good, for Germany was developing one of the truly great fighters in history, which would take the lead in the coming military confrontation for control of the sky. The Messerschmitt Bf 109, was in the mid-1930s at the very forefront of fighter technology, kick-starting a new breed of high-speed monoplanes that could run rings around their biplane predecessors. It was joined by the twin-engined BF-110 heavy fighter and fighter bomber, for which the Luftwaffe had high hopes. The BF-110 would prove remarkably adaptable, being able to take on a variety of roles and possessing very heavy firepower in the nose, as well as a second crewman with a defensive gun in the rear cockpit to shoot at an attacking fighter. The British response was to produce two equally capable fighter planes. Few aircraft in history can claim to have captured the imagination of the world like the Supermarine Spitfire. Considered by many 
with its smooth lines and distinctive pointed wingtips to be as much a work of art as a piece of engineering. Nearly every pilot that climbed into the cockpit was in love at first flight. Designed by the talented engineer R.J. Mitchell, who passed away before the war broke out, the Spitfire came from a stable more used to building seaplanes than land-based fighters. However, Supermarine was a major player on the speed record circuit of the 1920s and 30s, and it was this quest for faster machines that instantly gave the Spitfire a high-performance pedigree. Before war broke out, German pilots scoffed that the Spitfire was nothing more than a flying sports car, but they would soon realize that it was the only fighter in Europe with the performance that could truly threaten the 109's supremacy. In contrast to this sports car comparison enjoyed by the Spitfire, the Hawker Hurricane presented a more utilitarian front. This was a fighter that looked like it was built to both dish out a great deal of punishment in a dogfight and, if necessary, take it. And that was exactly what it did. Designed by another of the British engineering greats, Sir Sidney Cam, the Hurricane had a lineage that went back through a series of successful biplane fighters and light bombers, such as the Hawker Nimrod and Fury, all of which share a certain familial look in the design of their fuselage. Entering RAF service in December of 1937, eight months before the Spitfire, the Hurricane was the service's first operational fighter capable of flying in excess of 300 miles per hour. And while the Spitfire may have hogged much of the spotlight in propaganda films, the fact that there were 18 Hurricane squadrons available to fight a command compared to just 10 squadrons of Spitfires, meant a great portion of the burden of Britain's air defense lay squarely on the shoulders of the Hurricane pilots. The designers and manufacturers of both aircraft adopted different techniques and processes in producing their respective craft. The Hurricane, for example, featured a fuselage skinned with the tried and tested method of doped linen over a wooden and metal frame, while the Spitfire featured an all-metal body leading one observer of the prototype to proclaim it was made of tin. However, the RAF push for as much standardization as possible in its aircraft to ease the burden on the supply chain led to both aircraft sharing a number of components, and as a result, similar strengths and weaknesses. Most notably, both aircraft adopted the Rolls-Royce Merlin V12 engine, which, contrary to popular belief, does not take its name from the Wizard of Arthurian legend, instead coming from the Falco Columbarius bird of prey. Like the Spitfire, the Merlin was birthed from the racing circuit in the 1930s, and when run using 100 octane fuel, was rated at 1,310 horsepower. This was enough to propel the Spitfire Mark I to a top speed of 367 miles per hour at 18,600 feet in the air just three miles per hour slower than the BF-109E being fielded by the Luftwaffe in 1940. The Hurricane, with its thicker wing, lagged behind at 322 miles per hour. However, the BF-109 did enjoy a slightly higher climb rate than either aircraft. However, the performance of the early Merlins came with a serious drawback when compared to the equivalent DB610 engine of the 109E. Whereas the German DB601 had fuel injection, which drove fuel into the cylinders, the Merlin still utilized carburetors to feed the engine fuel, which required gravity to force the fuel down into the cylinders. Consequently, 
when a Spitfire or Hurricane rolled, inverted, or the pilot pitched the nose down too quickly in the pursuit of a German aircraft, he would briefly experience zero gravity, and the engine would be momentarily starved of fuel, causing it to splutter and lose power, a potentially lethal scenario in a dogfight. There would be efforts made to rectify this problem in the field, such as teaching pilots to roll before diving, but this gave a German pilot even more time to escape. Another feature shared by both aircraft was a main armament comprising of eight Browning machine guns, a phenomenally powerful punch when it came to the aircraft of the mid-1930s, when they were conceived. It was twice the firepower of the early model BF-109s, but again, this decision would come with a drawback by the summer of 1940. Aircraft guns of the day, the world over, were predominantly variants of machine guns employed by the army, and the RAF's Brownings were no different. As such, they were chambered for the British Army's standard 303 round, again, as part of a national effort to relieve the burden on the logistical chain with one bullet fitting all. Unfortunately, by 1939, with the advent of greater production in bomber designs, such as heavier armor and self-sealing fuel tanks, the 303 round was increasingly losing its effectiveness in the air-to-air role. Having eight guns pouring rounds into the target certainly helped shore up their impact, but it was clear that the current configuration was going to need replacing. The Germans, too, had realized this, and so they began replacing the wing-mounted machine guns in their BF-109Es with 20mm cannons, which instead of firing a solid bullet, fired an incendiary or explosive shell, which dramatically increased their lethality and was one of the reasons the Luftwaffe fighting force was so effective over continental Europe. Despite these drawbacks, compared to the BF-109, there was one area in which the British fighters excelled, their very high turning rates. Prior to the outbreak of the battle, an ideal engagement was formed up in the minds of British planners when tackling German air raids, whereby the Spitfires would attack the German BF-109 escorts, using their higher performance to engage them in combat and drawing them away from the bombers. This would allow the Hurricanes to sweep in and attack, with the Hurricane being the more stable gun platform, with its guns mounted closer together, allowing a pilot to better focus his cumulative firepower on crucial areas of the German bomber. Of course, once in combat, things rarely went as planned, and as obsolete pre-war tactics were being dispensed with, and new pilots arrived from basic flight training with barely 10 hours on these high-performance fighters, Fighter Command was about to learn some hard lessons in modern air combat. While we most commonly associate these two aircraft with the Battle of Britain, they were by no means the only types fielded by the British. Probably the most unique fighter of the battle was the Bolton Paul Defiant Turret Fighter, which, as the name implies, carried its main armament of four Brownings in a rotating turret behind the pilot. A much heavier machine, combat with the Defiant was unlike any other fighter, the turret being able to bring the guns to bear over a wide field of view, regardless of where the aircraft's nose was pointing. This potentially war-winning advantage was sadly nullified by German fighter pilots learning to attack them from the front and below, and so their use against the escorts was minimal. However, they remained effective bomber destroyers, provided they were left unchallenged to attack. Additionally, there was a small number of Gloucester Gladiators, the RAF's last frontline biplane. Extremely agile, 
The slow and lightly armed fighter would play a small role in the defense of Britain, but would earn near legendary status elsewhere, particularly in the defense of Malta and in North Africa. But while having fighters was one thing, knowing where to send them was quite another. Enter Fighter Command's most crucial tool in the coming battle, radar. Radar, an acronym for radio detection and ranging, was still a new technology in 1940, but it had already revolutionized Fighter Command's defensive posture. Britain was by no means the only country with radar technology at the time, but it was the way Dowding's Fighter Command would use it that would prove so pivotal in the coming days. Whereas the Germans used their radars like binoculars, allowing local commanders to see enemy aircraft as they approached his units, Dowding instead created an intricate web of radar stations dubbed Chain Home to detect incoming raids and then pass that information to a centralized headquarters responsible for all fighter operations in a given area. Protecting Southeast England, including London, Number 11 Group, commanded by Air Vice Marshal Keith Park, based at RAF Uxbridge, would take the brunt of the coming German attacks, reinforced by Number 10 Group, which covered Southwest England, and Number 12 Group, which covered the Midlands and East Anglia. From their control rooms, each group commander had a grandstand view of the events taking place as they happened, which afforded them the ability to use their assets to maximum efficiency. For example, instead of scrambling every aircraft to go after one German force, as was the practice previously, they could now send just enough to tackle it, thus keeping other squadrons back, in case the previously sighted German force was acting as part of a larger attack. Alternatively, if a particularly large raid was underway against one group, Dowding, from his god's eye view as head of fighter command at RAF Bentley Priory, could deploy aircraft from neighboring groups to assist. This was the brilliance of Dowding's organizational skills. It created an intricate but flexible air defense network to bring as much force to bear against the attackers as possible, and was so innovative that it lay the foundation of today's modern integrated air defense systems. The drawback of radar, however, is that it couldn't tell Dowding the size and composition of the German raid it was detecting. That job fell to the Royal Observer Corps, an army of specially trained personnel who often sat atop cliff edges, mountaintops, and tall buildings with binoculars, observing the German aircraft and passing what they saw back to Dowding. Of course, creating such a complex network was not without risks, the biggest being that it was very easy for controllers to confuse friendly aircraft with enemy ones, and so, in order to prevent cases of friendly fire taking place, British fighters began to be fitted with a radio device known as an IFF, meaning identification friend or foe. The need for such a device was heightened frighteningly early, when on December 6, 1939, just the third day of Fighter Command's war, two Spitfires shot down a pair of Hurricanes during a false alarm scramble, killing one of the Hurricane pilots. Unfortunately, not every aircraft in Fighter Command had one of these IFF sets fitted, and some pilots even disliked carrying them, due to the weight it added to the aircraft. Organizationally, Dowding and Fighter Command was now ready, but materially, even with Beaverbrook's help, his force was still rebuilding, and the need for new pilots meant that training was increasingly being streamlined, so new pilots were less prepared for combat with the experienced German aces. But there was no time left. The Battle of Britain, 
was about to begin. On July 1st, 1940, Hitler's troops landed on the British Channel Islands. Located so close to France, there was little the British could do to stop them. Despite one side of the channel now firmly under the German banner, British shipping still made their way south of the River Thames after loading and unloading their cargoes into London. For their protection, these vessels were formed up into convoys guarded by British destroyers and gunboats that would skirt as close to the British side as they could while steaming towards the open seas of the Atlantic. Even before Hitler had settled on the course towards an invasion, Goering had decided to instigate a campaign aimed at destroying these convoys and the harbors from where they had set off. This, he reasoned, would not only damage vital British shipping traffic, but also draw the RAF's fighters into the air, where they could be destroyed by his skilled BF-109 pilots. Beginning in July, there had been several skirmishes and raids, but it was on July 10th that Goering would step up a gear. It was on July 10th that the Battle of Britain would begin. Heavy cloud that morning blanketed the English Channel. Based at RAF Coltishall in Norfolk, Number 66 Squadron was sat on alert when at 730 hours, they received the call to scramble three of their Spitfires to investigate a single aircraft detected by radar at West Beckham. Led by pilot officer Charles Cook, the three Spitfire pilots couldn't have known that they were about to instigate one of the most crucial battles in history. Breaking through the thick cloud, they spotted the intruder at 10,000 feet and identified the menacing, slim silhouette of a Dornier 17 twin-engined bomber. Nicknamed the Flying Pencil before the war, in reference to its long, thin fuselage designed to give the aircraft as much speed as possible, the Dornier was now the oldest of the Luftwaffe's bomber trio. With just one aircraft in sight, it was obvious to the RAF fighter pilots that the aircraft was on a reconnaissance mission, most likely assessing the weather before a follow-up attack was ordered. Cook and his section began their attack, riddling the bomber with gunfire, even as the German pilots tried desperately to take evasive action to avoid them. It was all in vain, however, and the doomed bomber rolled over into a death dive, crashing off Great Yarmouth, but not before Cook's aircraft received a battle scar from the encounter, in the form of a bullet from one of the German defensive gummers smashing his windscreen, forcing him to fly back to Coltishol with icy cold wind blasting him in the face. But this was just the opening round. At 1000 hours, another roaming Dornier 17 found what the Luftwaffe was looking for, a channel convoy codenamed Bread sailing off North Foreland. Radar detected the German bomber and dispatched six Spitfires from No. 74 Squadron based at RAF Manston to take care of it. However, the Dornier was not alone. Roaming over the channel in support of the reconnaissance effort were a flight of 30 Messerschmitt BF-109s, a terrifying prospect for the Spitfire pilots, who nonetheless pressed home their attack on the twin-engined aircraft. Despite a frantic effort to take down the Dornier, The swarming BF-109s fought them off with their superior numbers, allowing the German bomber to escape, leaving behind the fighters to duel it out near the seaside town of Margate. Despite aircraft on both sides taking damage, they all managed to return to their bases. Elsewhere, more Spitfires had scrambled to engage a force of BF-109s spotted near Dover. In the brief but ferocious battle, one Spitfire was lost before the Germans withdrew. 
Knowing that the Germans were aware of the convoy's locations, the squadrons of number 11 group braced themselves for what was to come. And at 1330 hours, radar stations detected a large force of German aircraft flying over the Pas de Calais. 26 Dornier 17s and 40 Messerschmitt BF-110 twin-engine fighter bombers were en route to attack the convoy, being escorted by 24 BF-109s. This was it. This was the first real test of fighter command in the Battle of Britain. First on the scene were the Hawker Hurricanes of number 111 squadron, who formed up into a large V formation before diving headlong towards the German bomber formation attacking the Dorniers from the front, where they were least protected. With his sharp eyes, Hurricane pilot Ben Bowering later testified that as the Hurricanes went smashing through the formation, he could see a panicked Dornier pilot rising out of his seat to escape what he thought was going to be a collision. Using this tactic, the Hurricanes broke up the bomber formation, allowing them to start picking off Dorniers and prevent them from making attacks on the convoys. However, such aggressive tactics were every bit as dangerous to the Hurricanes as to the lumbering bombers. Flying Officer Tom Higgs was in the process of attacking a Dornier when his wing clipped the German aircraft, sending both hurtling into the English Channel. His body would not be found for over a month, when it would wash up on the occupied Dutch coast. At RAF Bentley Priory, Dowding could see the unfolding picture and felt helpless as he watched the plotting table updated with squadron movements. Five squadrons had now been committed to the battle over the channel, and the radios were alive with both excited cheers and terrified screams. In the melee that was taking place, cohesion on both sides largely fell apart, often leaving pilots to fend for themselves. Pilot officer Bob Doe soon found his Spitfire not only taking hits from a BF-109 behind him, but simultaneously from one ahead of him as well, crippling his fighter and forcing him to bail out from where he watched his two attackers nearly collide head-on with one another. In the channel below, around the convoy of ships, tall spires of water were sent up as bombs missed their targets. While they weren't destroying as many of the bombers as they would have liked, the RAF fighters were absolutely ruining their ability to hit their quarry below. By the end of the battle, the RAF had claimed 13 German planes for just six of their own number, a kill-to-loss ratio of more than two to one. But while this was cause for celebration amongst the squadrons who saw the day as a victory, for Dowding, the victory was bittersweet, for in his calculating mind, he knew the truth. With roughly 750 operational fighters taking on a force of 2,700 German warplanes, if fighter command had any hope of winning the Battle of Britain, British fighters were going to have to achieve twice as many kills in the future. Otherwise, through simple attrition, they would be whittled down into defeat. But the battle over the channel was not the only German attack that day, for the Luftwaffe had also launched a cunning, long-range attack against the Welsh port city of Swansea, flying to the south of the British Isles before attacking from the west. Taking British defences completely by surprise, the force of 70 German bombers damaged numerous ships in the harbour, a munitions factory, a vital railway line, and killed 30 people in the process. Such was the total surprise of the attack that any RAF plane in the area was scrambled to intercept them, including one Hawker Henley target tug flown by Wing Commander Ira Jones, a veteran of the First World War, and himself a born and bred Welshman. 
armed with nothing more than a signal flare. He pursued a German Junkers Ju-88 and fired it at the bomber, hoping to set it on fire, although it failed to have any impact. The attack on Swansea simultaneously showed how cunning the Germans could be and how stretched Fighter Command's resources were. The next day, on Thursday, July 11th, the Luftwaffe again made an attack on shipping in the English Channel, hoping to draw as much of the RAF's fighter fleet into battle as it could, but Dowding refused to take the bait and continued to deploy his aircraft as efficiently and sparingly as humanly possible. Knowing they couldn't get caught up in a prolonged fight against superior German numbers, RAF fighters continued to make daring, high-speed assaults on the German formations, looking to disrupt their ability to bomb the shipping below as much as possible, rather than simply going for the kill. Again, RAF fighters scored more than two kills for every one of their own who was lost. Poor weather hampered Luftwaffe operations over the following days, but they soon returned in force and the Straits of Dover became known to the RAF as Hellfire Corner. Determined to destroy their opposite number, Luftwaffe fighter pilots roam over the channel, baiting fighter commands to attack them, but RAF pilots are under instruction not to waste aircraft and pilots engaging them. The bombers are the aircraft that do the real damage, and so the British planes simply turn away from the fighters, knowing that the Achilles heel of the BF-109 is its short range, and they cannot pursue. It was at this time that Fighter Command also began carrying out one of its more controversial tasks. German seaplanes, marked with large red crosses, were often observed landing to pick up their downed airmen after a battle, and the RAF had previously left these rescue planes to go about unmolested, as they also picked up downed RAF pilots. However, it was quickly realized that there was nothing stopping them from reporting the positions of any convoys they sighted, and so the order came down to the squadrons to start shooting them down. As the Battle of Britain began to ramp up, Number 19 Squadron, based at RAF Duxford, began receiving what many hoped would give the Spitfire its killer punch against the German bombers. As had been feared before the war, the Spitfire and Hurricane's eight Browning machine guns weren't doing as much damage as had been hoped, forcing pilots to get in close to their targets, where the bullet's energy had a much greater effect upon impact. But this, of course, increased the danger from the German defensive gunners. Thus, trials had begun to replace some of the Brownings and a handful of Spitfires with the Hispano 20mm cannons, and number 19 squadron was to trial them in combat. Sadly, these early trials were disappointing. The Spitfire's wing was not designed for such a large weapon, and so the cannon had to be mounted sideways in order for it to fit, which resulted in it becoming prone to jamming as it was hurled around in the violence of a dogfight. Nevertheless, the promise of a cannon-armed Spitfire was such that Supermarine quickly went about designing a new mount for the weapon, but in the meantime, Spitfires continued flying with their eight Browning guns. Facing the same problem with their Hurricane, Hawker were hurriedly working on a new universal wing for their fighter. This was intended to have four 20mm cannons, but as a fallback, the new wing could also take a frankly staggering 12 Brownings. Examples of both were planned, but they wouldn't be ready until September. Meanwhile, the Germans were also utilizing their famed dive bomber, the Junkers Ju-87 Stuka, against the convoys. 
With German air superiority over Europe, these rather slow, single-engined light bombers carved out a terrifying reputation for their ability to dive steeply and place bombs onto targets as small as a car, something unthinkable using level bombing techniques. They should, therefore, have had much greater success at hitting ships in the channel, but the British almost always seemed ready for them as they made their attacks, such as the one on Saturday, July 20th. Preparing to begin their diving attacks on British ships, a flight of Stukas suddenly found themselves under attack as British fighters dived out of the sun and began cutting them down, despite a heavy escort of BF-109s. Nine German planes were destroyed, highlighting the increasing vulnerability of the Stuka to powerful British fighters, while just three RAF planes were lost. As July ground to an end, German fighter pilots grew ever frustrated with the way events were proceeding. Poor weather continued to limit the number of attacks the Luftwaffe could conduct against the convoys and forays into British ports, and when the attacks did take place, the British continued their fast, hit-and-run style of attack, refusing to get locked into battle whenever possible. The Germans were also perplexed as to how British fighters had an almost clairvoyant ability to know where they were, always seemingly waiting for them, having achieved an altitude above the bombers ready to make their high-speed slashing attacks. Of course, the answer was the chain home radars and Dowding's meticulous command structure, but these facts were lost on Goering, who hadn't yet grasped its importance. However, that was about to change. The arrival of the crucial month of August for Hitler's plans put greater pressure on the head of the Luftwaffe. After the fall of France, many in the Luftwaffe and the German armed forces at large believed the war was over, and several units were sent home to Germany for leave. Now they were being called back to take on the RAF, flying from bases in Western Europe and Scandinavia. On August 5th, the Luftwaffe lost one of its stars in the form of Reinhard Sailor, who had scored nine kills during the Spanish Civil War and two more during the fight for France when he was wounded in an engagement with a force of Spitfires, leaving him to spend the rest of the year recuperating. That same day, Hitler instructed Goering to expand Luftwaffe operations across the south coast of Britain in preparation for Sea Lion to commence, something Goering was more than happy to do. In the meantime, the attacks on the convoys continued. On August 8th, convoy CW9, one of the largest so far, was making its break for the open sea through the Dover Strait. It had already been attacked by German high-speed e-boats, and now the Stukas were being sent in to finish the job, escorted by BF-109s. However, the Germans again found themselves under attack by hurricanes of number 145 squadron, who successfully broke the German formation. Later in the day, the Stukas returned, and this time they came prepared with an even larger escort of BF-109s and BF-110 twin-engined fighters. Pilot Officer David Crook of Number 609 Squadron recalled what happened next in his book, Spitfire Pilot. We steered towards the convoy, which was by now 12 miles south of Bournemouth. I was now about five miles from the convoy and could see a big number of enemy fighters circling above, looking exactly like a swarm of flies buzzing round a pot of jam. Below them, the dive bombers were diving down on the ships and great fountains of white foam were springing up where their bombs had struck the water. I could see that one or two ships had already been hit and were on fire. 
At that moment, a hurricane squadron appeared on the scene and attacked right into the middle of the enemy fighters, which were split up immediately, and a whole series of individual combats started covering a very big area of sky. August 8th would see some of the most ferocious fighting of the battle so far. By the end of the day, both sides returned home bloodied and bruised. Despite the RAF's best efforts, the convoy had lost seven ships, while 13 had taken damage from German bombs. For their trouble, the Germans lost 31 aircraft for the RAF's 19. Then, on August 11th, German aircraft attacked the oil storage tanks at Portland, Dorset. David Crook was again in action that day. We went down, right on top of the enemy formation, going at terrific speed, and as we approached them, we split up slightly each pilot selecting his own target. I saw a BF-110 ahead of me going across the front. I fired a good burst at practically point-blank range. Some black smoke poured from his port engine, and he turned to the right and stalled. I could not see what happened after this, as I narrowly missed hitting his port wing. It flashed past so close that I instinctively ducked my head. Unknown to Crook and his comrades, the attack on Portland and another convoy in the channel that day would signal the end of phase one of the Battle of Britain, and the start of another. For the next day, Goering was about to throw the full weight of the Luftwaffe against fighter command. By now, he had realized the importance of the radar installations to the RAF's success, and so he decided to deprive them of this advantage by sending out a force to destroy the radars at Dover, Pevensey, Rye, and Dunkirk in Kent. The weather on August 12th was favorable for the Luftwaffe, and so the British radar operators had expected to see the German aircraft on their screens. At Pevensey, a force of BF-110s carrying 1,102 pounds of bombs launched unnervingly accurate shallow diving attacks, destroying radar towers, buildings, trucks, and severing power lines. The scene was repeated at the other sites, and for the first time, Holes had been punched in Fighter Command's radar coverage, leading Dowding's controllers to rely heavily on the eyes and ears of the Royal Observer Corps to know where the Germans were heading. It was a worrying turn of events, given how much they had relied on radar stations thus far. Looking to take advantage of this, at 1145 hours, a force of Stukas were dispatched to attack shipping in the mouth of the Thames estuary, but rather fortuitously for the British, the radar station at Forland had escaped the early morning attacks and vectored fighters from the RAF Hornchurch and RAF Biggin Hill to engage them. Almost at the same time, another radar station had identified a large force of 200 German bombers flying south of Brighton before heading off to attack the major Royal Navy base at Portsmouth, as well as other industrial targets, including a factory in Woolston, where Spitfires were being built. At the Ventnor radar station, BF-110s and JU-88 bombers were carrying out another attack, but were immediately set upon by hurricanes and spitfires. Unfortunately, the British fighters couldn't stop the Germans from devastating the radar sites, further blinding Dowdig, who was at Number 11 Group's headquarters at RAF Uxbridge, watching intently as a large map of the southeast of England was updated by members of the Women's Auxiliary Air Force. Now the war was coming to fighter command, as German bombers began heading for the British bases themselves. At approximately 1325 hours, RAF Manston came under attack, just as Spitfires for Number 65 Squadron were getting airborne for a patrol, taking off as bombs exploded around them. 
RAF fighters from RAF Hornchurch and RAF Rochford, which itself was soon under attack, were scrambled into the air in support of their comrades. Unfortunately, the RAF response was too slow, and most of the bombers had dropped their loads before they were attacked by the defending fighters. The Germans lost 10 bombers, 5 BF-110s, and a single BF-109, at the cost of 11 RAF fighters, but the damage on the ground shook the British leadership. Manston had taken a heavy beating, as had Portsmouth, where over 100 civilians had been killed by German bombs. But the biggest hit was to the radar sites. Repairs began almost immediately, and some were able to start sweeping the sky again within hours, an impressive feat given the punishment they had taken. But others, like Ventnor, were out of commission for 72 hours, a period of time in which they would be desperately needed, for this was only the beginning. As Hitler's original target date for Sea Lion to begin was fast approaching, it was becoming increasingly clear that his forces were not ready to cross the channel. Even excluding the fact that the RAF was still appearing in strength, preparations for the crossing were incomplete, as were the final details of the overall plan. Therefore, he begrudgingly pushed the date back by two weeks to the beginning of September. In the meantime, it was down to Goering and the Luftwaffe to launch a major offensive against the RAF, the aim of which would be to destroy all RAF fighter bases in southeast England and thus achieve air superiority over the invasion zones. The attacks on August 12th would prove little more than preparation work, as the next day, Goering's Luftwaffe was ordered into action in force. Almost 1,400 aircraft, the largest air armada in history up to that point, were to be pitted against Fighter Command's bases on a single day, a day that Goering would call Aldertag, or Eagle Day. With follow-up attacks increasing in strength planned over the following week, Goering and his staff were supremely confident that with their grand offensive, by August 20th, the only planes that would be flying over southeast England would bear the swastika. However, unknown to Goering, there were already cracks forming in the plan. Firstly, Luftwaffe intelligence had greatly underestimated both Fighter Command's strength and the British ability to replace lost aircraft. They had told Goering that the RAF had less than 400 operational fighter aircraft left, when in fact the true number was almost twice that, and a small but steady stream of replacements were appearing thanks to Lord Beaverbrook's plans. They also believed that the RAF's command structure was so rigid and inflexible that once the attacks began, it would completely crumble, meaning there would be no coordinated British response. If this were not enough, on the other side of the channel, British codebreakers had intercepted a number of transmissions, alerting them that a major offensive was on its way. As the Luftwaffe took off from their bases, it was quickly revealed that they were the ones who were operating with an inflexible and inefficient command structure, which was causing problems for the pilots as they began to form up. With the weather turning, the Germans initially decided to call off the attack, but many aircraft were already airborne by that time. Thus, a group of BF-110s who couldn't locate the bombers they were supposed to be escorting, not knowing they had returned to base, went over the channel anyway, looking for anything they could shoot up, but were instead pounced upon by British fighters, losing many of their number in the process. Additionally, a force of German bombers carried out their attacks against airfields at East Church and Sheerness, despite having no fighter escorts. 
They were saved from total annihilation thanks to a miscommunication on the part of the Observer Corps. Launching again in the afternoon, the German armada droned its way across the channel, being tracked by the remaining radar stations and members of the Royal Observer Corps. In an effort to protect their bombers, the Luftwaffe fighter force flew ahead of the bomber group, intending to lure RAF defenders into battle where they could be destroyed, or at least tied up long enough for the bombers to find their targets. Unfortunately for them, at Dowding's insistence, the RAF fighter pilots held off from engaging them, waiting instead for the bombers to arrive. Poor weather hampered the German bombers' ability to find their targets, with several civilian airfields hit by mistake, including the aerodrome that would one day become Heathrow Airport. Other bombers instead attacked their secondary targets, such as industrial areas, but those that did find their targets did considerable damage. However, again, Luftwaffe intelligence would fail the bomber crews, as some of the targets hit had almost nothing to do with fighter command, such as the Stuka attack on RAF Detling, which housed a formation of Coastal Command patrol bombers, but no fighters. In the air, the RAF fighters continued to press home their attacks against the bombers. RAF fighters were kept on the ground for as long as possible, so that they had the maximum fuel in order to tangle with the German armada. By the end of the day, 13 RAF fighters had been lost, but they had destroyed 47 German aircraft. Furthermore, the German attack had achieved very little in disrupting Fighter Command's operations. But again, somewhat incredibly, this fact was at first lost on Goering, who was still operating on the belief that the RAF was on its last legs. He was further encouraged by his pilot's own reports that they had led him to believe that as many as 70 RAF planes had been shot down during the day's engagements, although this was, of course, a gross overestimation. The RAF too had overestimated their success for the day, which somewhat fortuitously had a major impact on morale. The day's attacks were not confined to the airfields, or even southeast England. Later in the evening, German bomber forces conducted raids against aircraft factories as far away as Birmingham and even Belfast in Northern Ireland, while industrial targets in South Wales and Aberdeen in Scotland were also hit, but sustained relatively light damage. Throughout the day, the German armada had met stiff resistance, but the Luftwaffe intelligence assured Goering that considerable damage had been done to the RAF. In reality, however, Aldertag was an abject failure. However, Goering's offensive was far from over. The next day, August 14th, began with hurricanes from number 151 squadron at RAF North Weald dispatched to destroy a Dornier DO-17 on a reconnaissance flight with one hurricane being lost to the bomber's defensive gunners in the process. As Fighter Command waited patiently for news of the main enemy force to arrive, few of them outside RAF Manston were aware of the drama that had been unfolding there since the attack two days before. Remembered now as the Manston Mutiny, a group of raw recruits who had been traumatized by the previous German attack had barricaded themselves in underground shelters and were refusing to come out. At 1140 hours, radar stations again detected a large formation building over Calais in France. Four fighter command squadrons were brought to readiness, two each of hurricanes and spitfires, and as the Germans took a course towards the Strait of Dover, the RAF scrambled to intercept. The Royal Observer Corps spotted them through binoculars and identified 80 Ju-87 Stukas, accompanied by BF-109s, and these were soon joined by a force of BF-110s. 
At midday, the RAF fighters engaged the Stukas and their escorts, but the BF-110s managed to sneak past the battle taking place in Hellfire Corner and went in low over Manston, dropping bombs with greater accuracy than the larger German level bombers. British AA gunners rushed into action and managed to score hits on one of the BF-110s, causing its tail to separate from its fuselage, bringing it down. Later in the afternoon, RAF Middle Wallop came under attack by a mixed force of HE-111s and a lone JU-88 that made a shallow dive attack towards the airfield before unleashing a single, large glide bomb from its weapons bay. The bomber then climbed away as the bomb struck a hangar, obliterating it and numerous unfortunate ground crew in its immediate vicinity. However, British revenge was swift, as a Spitfire of number 609 squadron that was rushing to get airborne during the attack turned in pursuit of the fleeing German bomber and unleashed a burst of gunfire upon it as it was still climbing, sending it crashing to earth, claiming the lives of the four crew on board. Again, the RAF had seemingly bested the Luftwaffe for another day, but Dowding was suspicious. He couldn't fathom what Goering was hoping to achieve with these seemingly random attacks, unaware that in Goering's mind, the RAF was about to collapse. The third day of his grand offensive was about to begin. It was going to be the largest yet. Surely, the nearly crushed RAF would fall against his might. Join us next time as we continue the story of the Battle of Britain and as Fighter Command reaches its lowest point, a strange twist of fate that will have far-reaching consequences for not just the battle, but for the entire world.